0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Improv Town. I am your host and ambassador, Clayton Mashad, and I have another great episode for you. In this episode, I talk to my buddy Mike Amaral from the Providence Improv Guild. We talk about lots of great stuff, including his experiences at Camp Improv Utopia, and we mainly talk about position play. So position play is this school of improv thought, comes from Miles Strath of The Family. The idea behind position player, there are four basic types of scenes. There are straight slash absurd scenes, realistic scenes, character scenes, and alternate reality scenes, and that each of those types of scenes has an inherent game built in or a a game format built into it. And so if you can figure out which of those four types of scenes you're in, then uh, most of the work is already done for you. So it's a super great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it and learn a lot. And I also have another great episode coming out soon with Kate and Casey, the founders of Wage House Improv Theater in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And we talk about lots of uh, great stuff, specifically all the things you need to know if you want to start your own theater. And I think I'm actually going to also do a mini-sode. We go on a little tangent for about half an hour where we uh, where I gush about my love of two-person improv. And uh, I think I'm going to chop that part out and just make it a mini because it's unrelated but super awesome. So look forward to both of those episodes. And uh, as always, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, hopefully, I'll see you guys soon. All right. Uh, so, you want to just start off by doing intro background stuff, talk about. I got started with improv, and then Oh,
1: sure. all the badass people you studied with. Well, I think, sure, they're all badass. Uh, I was introduced to improv late in life. I describe it as a midlife crisis I can afford, because not everyone can afford fast boats or cars or planes. But theater classes, I was working up in Boston. They were offered up at Improv Asylum. Uh, My cube mate had taken them. I didn't even know they existed. And I'm like, all right, let me try this place out. If I'm already commuting to Boston, I have to be there. Might as well finish my night there once a week before coming home. Uh, did it, fell in love with it, and have pursued it, either performing or studying ever since. Uh, you want the badass list? Oh, you Outside of, uh, I can, name, can I name all my instructors in Prophet Salam. I think I can. Uh, level 1, I had Chad Harding. Level 2, I believe I had Brian O'Hara. Uh, level 3, oh no, level 4 was Marty. Level 3... Oh, I'm going to blow it. I don't know them all in the correct order. I have failed you as a student in Providence Island. My my, my, my my deepest apologies. Uh, but it, all in all, uh, Tim Douglas, uh, Michael Anastasia is out in L.A. right now. Kylie Fitzgerald, who's out in Chicago right now. Brian O'Hara, who's also out in L.A. I, I studied with a bunch of people that have moved on to the bigger theaters or uh, better rows in the entertainment industry. Some of them have gone on to do films and commercials and whatnot. Uh, it's, it was fun. Outside of that, I've had uh, professional workshops with Jill Bernard, um, Jet Eleveth, Eveleth? Eveleth? I'm going to mess up her name. Sorry, Jet. I messed up your name. Uh, she was wonderful. Uh, we signed up for a workshop at Improv Asylum, and they had pushed that as many people could take it as possible. Two of us signed up. She <laughs> decided to hold it anyway, so we had uh, Jet uh, to ourselves for three hours. And it was probably the most bang for your buck I've ever gotten in any Improv Workshop. Because right. we went over every exercise we wanted. We exchanged our theater ideas. She exchanged hers. And it was wonderful. Uh, then I discovered Improv uh, Utopia through an online search. Uh, Nick Armstrong set up a, a wonderful summer camp program. We call it Summer Camp. but they happen the fall in the spring and the summer. And now there's four camps. There's an East Coast, a West Coast, a camp every year at Yosemite. And this year in May is the first year in Ireland, so that's going to be exciting. Yeah, fancy! Uh, through that, I, I've had Bob Dassey, I've had Craig Kukowski, I've had Carla Kukowski, um, Jimmy Moyer, uh, Brian O'Connell twice. Uh, you know, again, I'm going to do just dis- uh, uh, I'm going to do everyone a disrespect by not remembering my teachers because I should have prepared because an actor prepares, and I should have written down everyone I studied with before this, but of course I, uh, I did not. So failure once again is on me. But uh, needless to say, I've gotten uh, several workshops from people who have their theaters all across the country, and some internationally as well. And that's been it's been great. I think that influx of ideas is very important. So you're not just pigeonholed in one school of thought.
0: Yeah. Oh, so before we start talking about what we plan to talk about, <laughs> I like what, what you just said. So let's peel that about, onion. Let's let's unpack that.
1: That's a lot to unpack.
0: <laughs> so what do you? So the idea of uh, Obviously, like, in, in the broadest sense, it's good to get as many ideas from as many different schools and everything as possible. But I want to ask what your opinion is on whether there's, like, a time... Not really a time and a place, because the place is it's arbitrary, but whether you think the best way to do it is to get maybe a solid foundation in one school, and then once you get good at that, to, to then... You know, find another theory and see how that fits into that and then continually doing it versus, say, you were in Chicago, for example, and being like, I want to get into improv. All right, Monday nights I'm going to be taking a class at I.O.
1: Tuesday night it's going to be at Annoying's and
0: then Friday nights going to be at Second City. Uh,
1: I think if you're the right type of person that can handle all types of differing, not not so much fighting or competing, but uh, slightly different tangential ideas at the same time and process them individually and see where you can weave them into your own tapestry, then it's great. I, I don't think that's typical of most people. Uh, similar back when back when I was a, a young wee lad in, in, at university, uh, I took both an ethics class and a logic and reasoning class at the same time from the same instructor. And he took me aside after, because the classes were back-to-back, he took me aside and he goes, weren't you in the logic and reasoning class? I'm like, yeah. Like, but now you're taking ethics. Like, yeah. Because most people don't take them the same semester at the same time. Because they, they work on two different areas. One works on, you know, this is, this is logic. This is the, the the best bang for your buck. This is the numbers. And ethics are personal feelings and whether or not mores and morals uh, apply to your decisions versus logic. Because most people can't handle learning those two things at the same time. And all I did was ask my, my teacher, I said, but you teach them both at the same time, don't you? And he went, welcome aboard. And, you know, I handled those classes. I did okay. Passed them both. It was close, though. Uh... So I think under that same school of thought, some people can handle it, and most should probably get a base, at least to uh, at least a perform a comfortable performing level with one school of thought in improv before, you know, bringing in those other ideas. Because if you're not if you don't have a solid base with what you're doing, then taking in those other ideas might come across as oh I'm doing this thing wrong because these other people say to do it this way, and if you follow that trail, you will follow eight different well, at least eight theories or schools of thought and the previous seven are all wrong and then you'll just be cyclic and you'll go back to the very first school you came at and you'll realize that they may have been right and then everybody was right and everybody was wrong and you'll just go crazy.
0: Yeah right that's the thing like, they give you you know they might give you some note in and, and one and then you try to carry that over to your <laughs> to the other one the exact, and then they're like that's not what we want that's not what we do. The here. exact
1: opposite note like yeah. always do this never do this you can't both be right you can't both be wrong.
0: Yeah the the of workshop it was so good and he yeah. refers to it as like subversive improv
1: gorilla improv and <laughs> I,
0: I really think that if you it was so good but I think almost like if you took that as your first class it would it would like screw you for the rest of your improv career because he we do we purposely do scenes like he never wants you to do any backstory or anything like if you're you know you always do this which normally, like, in a UCB style, like, that's how you would let the person know what the game is. You know, like, well, you always think that things that happen in fairy tales happen to you in real life. And then it's like, okay, that's the game of the scene. We're doing a You're scene.
1: always late when we have to go somewhere. And that's the easiest, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the manual and in their classes. Easiest way to describe or play a game.
0: And we did scenes where, like... No. He has no problem with questions, no problem with saying no. And, like, all of these things, And I feel like if you... You know, if you learned all of that stuff, and then you went to another school, they would just be telling you, like, everything that you were doing was wrong. Like, like, like well, you can't ask a question for an initiation. You absolutely can. But I saw so many scenes where it was, he asked the question, the person said no, and then they just repeated the question over yeah. and over
1: again. I think that's uh, exactly where I found I wanted to know all the different schools of thought. Not to find out which one's right, or which one's best, or which one's better. But I want to have all those... those Tools in my in my toolbox. So if I'm playing in a theater where they play a certain style, or the scene calls for a certain style, because the players in there have all been learned and all behave a certain way, I want to be able to follow along. I don't want to be the wrench that works. I want to be the wrench that works in the toolbox. That there's a hammer and a screwdriver, and that wrench is helping out rather than stopping the gears from turning. Uh, when I first started reading all the manuals, so you read you know Truth and Comedy by by Dell and China. And then you go out and you read one of McNapier's books, and, and you see them as two sides. I always saw them as two sides of the same coin. Some would say that Mick was teaching the exact opposite of Dell's, and some people still say it to this day, like, oh, Mick goes exact opposite. The way I interpret it was, you know, Dell's like, we don't ask questions because questions will, learn, will lead to a disaster scene, will, will, will lead to lack of control, because you're saying I don't have anything. And Mick was like, if you're asking a question, you've already acknowledged you don't have something and uh, the the scene is already bad and the question asking is a human response out of nervousness. The the question doesn't make the scene bad. The question is a symptom. that The scene is already sick and questions just come out as symptoms almost like a post-nasal drip of of improv. Uh, But I've learned and the the best thing was that uh, questions are easily used in improv. They're they're easy initiations. You can use them all the time because a question is just a character's need to know something. So if you if all you have is a question. You're on stage or you know, or you're in a class and you're level one, level two, and you have a character or a, a student that can't get past asking questions, have them spin it into a character's desire to know something. So rather than say, Why why didn't you run the dishwasher last night? The character needs to know that information. So the quick little light switch you pull is I need to know why you never run the dishwasher at night. And now there's an emotion behind it. That's an offer. You know how my character feels about it. It's a question, but you know what I feel about this particular subject. But I'm asking you to emote back from there. So you already know I'm frustrated and or sad about it from my vocal tones. And the thing we're talking about is, how come you don't load the dishwasher? And if this is true, what else is true? What else don't you do in this household, a.k.a. in this relationship? And it just moves from there. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Because it's
0: kind of ties back to like the two ideas of of don't respond to the question respond to the tone you know, it's not about what they're you know it's not about what they're actually asking you it's about what what it means that they're asking you
1: yeah the question is essentially an offer I am I'm, I'm throwing you a gift right now this is how my character feels and this is a particular situation that I feel that way about but what other situations are there by all means let's explore together and see why I'm feeling that way rather than just a reflex of why do you do this? That doesn't help, but how I feel about why you do a certain thing. That's where we're going.
0: Yeah, and then also this idea of, like, there's no such thing as a as a metaphor or something. Like, someone is asking you, you know, the idea of, like, I need to know why you didn't unload the dishwasher. Then rather than just taking that as, like, the everyday mundane thing, like, turn it into, like, a person that, like, like they're... The most important thing in their life is yes. that they need to know why I didn't like, that, unload the dishwasher. That's definitely
1: taking it to a ten, but just the just the words I need to know. It just adds the gravity; that's the weight is there. It's not just, "Hey, how come you didn't load the dishwasher?" Oh, I forgot about it. Oh, okay, that's two lines of dialogue that are useless in the scene. The audience is bored. Yeah, they have dishwashers at home that somebody doesn't load, but we haven't made that the crux of our scene. We haven't found the emotion. If I stress, I, I need to know like, I want to understand. If you're never going to love that dishwasher, great, fine. But I need to know why, because I, I need to understand you. So that character dynamic, that relationship, there's a piece of knowledge missing there between those two characters that one is actively asking for. Help me know you better. And then we'll find some more wackiness as we get there, but help me know you. And then as you explore and uh, expose yourself to me, not in that way, uh, the weirdness happens. Yeah. It's another
0: thing I've kind of been thinking about, of how... Obviously, the rules are are what they are. You know, like
1: they're, they're rules. Rules are meant to be broken. Um, almost everyone I've played with has said that once you know the rules, then you know how to bend or break them.
0: Right. It's more like the way that, like the example you just gave of, of like, why didn't you unload the dishwasher versus I need to know why you didn't unload the dishwasher. Like that second one doesn't have a question mark at the end.
1: Right. right. It's a question in an offer statement form.
0: But it's... Right, it's essentially exactly.
1: the same reaction. If, if if your brain wants to ask that question, you just take that quick second and swap it into a, a need or a desire. Because we always talk about what do our characters want, needs? How are they going to move forward? And my want and need is let's figure out why this question that my body wanted to ask, because I'm, I'm panicked, becomes a driving force in our scene. Yeah. No, I've been kind
0: of thinking that with like yes and... Lately, too, that you learn, at least, like, you know, when you're level one, I don't know if you've ever done it with that exercise where, like, you do no, yes, but, yes, and, mm. whether it's, like, you're planning a party, it's, like we should do this, and then the first time everyone says no, then they say yes, but we should also do this other thing, and then the yes, and. Which on one thing.
1: makes you feel best? It's the yes, and, and moving forward, and that's, like, it, my first exercise in level one, I think we actually just stood and did two lines, and someone said, just walk up to the other person, you don't initiate. The initiation is the other line just looking at you and saying no to your face, and then swap, go to the other side of the line. So all we did for five minutes was have someone just look at us and say no. At the end of it, we were asking, how do you feel about that? It's kind of negative. You don't want to be told no all day, even as an adult. Like, children definitely don't want to hear it, and that's why they repeat it all the time. But adults don't want to hear it. And the moment we changed it into a yes, even without any context, Everyone was smiling. Everyone was happier. You would hear the yeses as people smile. I could phone support for years. You'd be told, always smile when you're talking to a customer. No matter how you feel, your your body will shape a happier sound out of it. And you'll actually feel more, you'll be more attentive to them, more receptive. And they'll think that uh, you're happier. And they'll be happier back to you unless they're really upset when they call. Yeah, so we were doing
0: this exercise. So we did in, our, in one of our practices the other day. So we were doing... You know, where you start off and you like literally say yes, and, and repeat whatever the person said, and then we dropped it to where like you just agree, and it started slipping to these to these yes buts. And at first I was like, ah, oh. like, oh, oh. like, I feel like we're even you know, we're not fully doing what we're what we're trying to do. And then I would think about some of them and think that like they really are. They're still like yes, ands, It's just that the normal way that you present things like I don't know there's almost like two types of, of yes buts so like the example the initiation or, or you know an example of like the first two lines was this house is haunted yes but we go, but it was on sale and at first it was like ah, oh, like you know that's that's not really like agreement but it's, thinking, it's not like, full
1: agreement but it's still it's agreeing the idea this house is haunted and and the but is you know it was on sale so, which idea is more important to play? Oh, we're in a haunted house. That's my character's offer. Or if this is on sale. I'm obviously spinster and/or I'm, uh, I'm frugal. That's my character's offer. So now we've got two separate hot offers on the, on the plate. Which one are we actually going to explore? If it's a character-driven, team, we could explore them both. But, you know, yeah, you get I,
0: mean, I guess that is the, right. That's the whole argument between against the yes, but is that you end up with these two opposing ideas? But like in that case, it was I don't know. I was just thinking like it kind of is like an and. It's just that in order to present it in a way that sounds natural, you have, you, you'd be like, yes, and can you believe it was on sale? I guess you could say that, and that would be the same. The same.
1: You're still offering information about your character that the, the sale was exciting for your character. So, um, Character A is concerned that it's haunted. Character B agrees it's haunted, but is happy about the sale. And then we know what drives these two people. Great, now these two characters, we have their base... We know it drives them individually. How do these two emotions and our wants start intersecting as we explore this to the house? Right, yeah, and I feel like,
0: yeah, and that was the thing. Is that at first I was like, oh, I, I was kind of mad about, about the butting just because on the on the exercise
1: that we were doing. Okay, like, it's, it's, it's all word choice and semantics. So yes, but is more, hey, I'm going to put a handout or put a wall up and say, I, I hear your idea, but my idea is important. Yes, and can you believe it was on sale? That that's excitement. I am trying to be I am happy that you agree it's haunted. So to me, it's not that the haunting doesn't matter. That's a selling point. Yes, it's haunted and it was on sale. So now I'm excited that it's haunted it's and ha- excited that it's on sale. Meanwhile you are concerned it's haunted.
0: Yeah, I know. I guess why I was so because I was thinking about it, like having that having that conversation like in my head. But then I almost get to the point where like t- t- to thinking that the bug was actually better because then you you have this game of like a person who is always willing to take, who is, like, so fooled by a deal or so fooled by a promotion that you'll take on something that is totally ridiculous, like, like this car only has three tires. Yeah, but they threw in the free warranty. Or, like, I don't know. Just it, like,
1: it's still a juxtaposition. I, I can see how some people would have uh, concerns about trying to play it. And some people, it could be, you know, veteran improvisers in the audience going, like, well, that was a yes, but no, you now you're going to lose me. I'm not necessarily there for the other improvisers in the audience. They're gonna find a hundred things I do wrong on stage every single performance. So I'm not the ones, I'm not trying to impress them or make a point. If I get them laughing, then yeah, I've done really good. If I've gotten to someone who knows the craft and who studies it rather than watches a piece of entertainment, then I still make them laugh. That, okay, that's bonus points for me. But my, my goal is not to get them. My goal is to get audience members entertained audience members engaged, you know, edge of their seat type thing, like what's happening next? I want to, I want, they want to know what's happening next. I want them to keep asking themselves that question. What happens next? What happens next? If they get bored of the character, then we've already lost them. I want them to keep them entertained, engaged, and if that becomes, they come to more shows, they stop us after the show and ask us what, what we do and how we learned it. If they come and take classes, all the more better. The more people in this, uh, this art form, the better, I think.
0: Yeah. I definitely think it's a mistake to try to play with the improvisers in the room. And unfortunately, that just is something that especially in like a small community just accidentally happens that you end up the like that just happens to be your audience so much. Yes. But if you
1: sometimes you're a victim of the of the room itself. And the room is, oh, it's five people who wandered in off the street. Great. And the eight people that are in the second act tonight. <laughs> well, that's the audience we're playing to. Let's see let's see what we can do with that.
0: <laughs> right. I can make meta yeah. Do you a,
1: joke? a lot of inside baseball happens. Uh, it's forgivable once in a while, but again, the five people off the street, they're the ones that are going to go make the you know, uh, TripAdvisor or Yelp reviews, tr- trademark those respective companies. This podcast is neither uh, in- endorsed or paid for by Yelp or TripAdvisor. Not yet,
0: but if you guys yeah. are looking for the sponsors of people, <laughs> I'll
1: take the money. Mm, uh, Crystal Pepsi. We're looking at you anytime. Anytime. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, those audience members, they're the ones that are going to tell their friends or their relatives that, yeah, I may have saw a 5 or $10 show in some place, but it was good, and here's why. Rather than wait for a giant theater event that comes around every two or three months and pay $75 for a seat to uh, see whatever the sequel to Phantom of the Opera is. Uh, spoiler alert, I know what it is. I saw it last week, and you know what? It probably shouldn't have made it, that's not important.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's a whole other thing with... I guess just as a performer, like whether it's like, oh, that person broke the rules, I'm gonna tune out. Or I feel like such the better response is like that person just dug, like dug, not even dug themselves the whole because the breaking the rules isn't always bad, but like, like ooh, that person didn't do what I would have done. I want to see how they're gonna make that yeah, seem our, work. A
1: rule gets if, we, if we're talking about rules being you know the guidelines, okay, they get bad, they get stepped on once in a while. If if you're someone who plays hardline rules, that rule gets broken, that's my cue to double down like, all right, let's see where else this can go. That's still be entertaining and fun to play. Again, rules will maybe be broken. Dell and Toronto will tell you, here's all the rules. Nick will tell you there are no rules, and it's just a reaction to what happens already. It's gone bad. I've been in a dozen uh, or more uh, fully organic scenes and organic sets that I love. Uh, I took J.T.S. Brown from from Craig Kikowski in Utopia. and that class, that workshop, that form, it's got a skeleton structure around it. It's basically... There's an opening, and there's a, there's a button at the end. But everything that happens in the middle is anything you guys want it to be. And there are is a known uh, bag of tricks, that they call gimmicks to, to pull from that you can use to I don't know, stabilize or right the ship, or re, you know recalibrate the compass every few uh, every few scenes. Get get this thing back out on order and get everyone on the same page. And then uh, insanity happens, and get everyone back on the same page, and insanity happens. I found it a real treat to watch. I found it a doubly treat to perform. And I wish we would did more of it here at Pig. I, I'm hoping that we do, but we'll see. We'll get yeah,
0: there. Yeah, I've heard a lot about it, both from, from Craig and from Nick Armstrong, who, who studied it for a long Yeah, yeah. So we, I
1: think Nick might be still on the team, and one of the only ones that's doing a JTS in the L.A. area.
0: Yeah. So. Well, yes, yeah, but I've never, I've never gone to see one.
1: It's wonderful. I have a couple of videos I can send you after this. I do. Yeah, here's
0: where it's like very stream of consciousness. Is that right?
1: It, it's some of that. It's no, no wrong. Dreams, it's okay. no, dream, it's like a dream. I can't
0: remember the exact way I heard that.
1: You could say it's like a dream sequence, or you know, a vision quest, as it were. Or someone had too many. Someone had the wrong type of mushrooms, and this is what what's what comes out of it. A lot of it makes sense like if you if you follow along and you use all the, the, those gimmicks the way they're meant to be used, then. That it's essentially like palate clenchers. Every time a gimmick comes up, it's entertaining to the audience. It's a it's a it's a known structure or a known format that everyone knows how to play this gimmick. So even though people are on stage, there's you know eight different things going on at once. A gimmick is declared, and then suddenly all the players are involved in the success of that gimmick, and then it melts away to chaos again, and then another gimmick shows up, and it's spontaneous when it's called for, but everyone knows the rules of the gimmick and they play it, and it's just it's just it's like uh, impressions Uh, it's like watching a a morphing picture in a 3D museum somewhere and like every once in a while it morphs oh that's a human face and then it looks like a lump of silly putty again and suddenly that's very distinctly a cat and then it's back to a a lump of silly putty and that's essentially how the form plays it it plays loose and crazy and everyone's having fun and then once in a while there's a structure that the audience it's it's a breather it's it's the group game in the Right. it's the audience goes ah this is something I can follow along with. This is great. This appears to have a set of rules that mirror you know, normal human behavior. And then just when they're calm again, just when they've taken that breath, we're off and running again and we take them on a lot different adventure. So it's a very fun game to play.
0: Cool. Uh, so earlier you said you studied with Brian James
1: O'Connell twice. Uh, BOC? I did twice. I was lucky. Been lucky.
0: Yeah, so that's. Yeah, very uh, lucky. So. Audience members, for those of
1: you don't know, <laughs> for those who don't know, Bri- Bri- Bri-
0: Brian <laughs> O'Connell is, uh, would you say, the protege of Miles Straw?
1: Uh, I think Miles would say that. I know. I know Brian says it. Uh, they they have this Jedi Padawan thing. They 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 have this wonderful mentor mentee relationship that. Uh, I both kind of listen to their podcast and I hear it, and, and it's wonderful. It's it's a passing of ideas and the evolution of those ideas. So you keep the, the core together and trying to find new ways to explain and uh, instruct new students and what those ideas mean and how, how they work. It's great.
0: Yeah, so Miles just started uh, Pac Theater out at L.A. So then before that, he was just
1: doing the Miles Stroth workshops. Yeah, the MSW. And
0: so, again, uh, for audience members who don't know. Inside baseball. Miles, yeah, Miles Stroth studied with Death Bluffs. He's uh, one of the one of the original members of the family. So that's Ian Roberts, Matt Walsh, Matt Besser, Ollie Paranakian, Adam McKay.
1: What about Neil? Uh, Neil Floyd well, and is. then and then
0: Miles Trap. So I think we got that's the that's the family as we know it. And they created Deconstruction, the movie, and essentially perfected the Herald, so they started the, the three mad rituals. As we. So that's backstory for those of you who
1: don't. When I got the backstory on uh, deconstruction from, from BOC, uh, the comment was everyone in the family sat around and said, hey, do we, can we do something besides the Herald? And uh, Dell's response back was, well, no one's ever asked me that before. What do you want to do? And that's when they invented and created the decon form, which I think is wonderful. It's all the story of, hey, do we have to keep doing this? No, it's improv. What, what else do you want to do? This is just what I what we settled on. You know, if you're having fun with it, we're going to keep doing it. If you want to do something new, let's talk.
0: Yeah, so now I've heard, uh, I think specifically from Brian, but he says, if, uh refers to, like, if Harold is like the algebra of improv, then the deconstruction is the calculus, calculus. <laughs> of improv, which is obviously just a way of being like, my form is so vastly superior to your form.
1: But. Uh, we talked about this, we talked about it in uh, Utopia. Like, the, the Harold is great, and some people are doing... Uh, Karen Gracchi is doing vertical heralds and a few other things. Like I know, I know here at Pig they've done musical heralds, great. We want to combine different—I uh, don't, don't want to call those gimmicks. They combine different flavors, so to speak, and let's throw a, little, uh, a lens on it and change the herald up a little bit. The vertical herald was interesting when well, I saw it at Embargo, so that's that's fun. It's it's the same structure, but it's basically it's 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 on its side, it's tilted a little bit, and things uh, things don't progress the way you expect them to. It's still a great show. It's, it's it's a marvelous show, but if you're looking for a standard Herald, you get surprised because they're not following the standard form of what you only want one one They're not doing the the heightening in the way you think they would. It's it's pretty fun. Uh,
0: yeah, it's cool. I don't think I've ever I'm sure
1: yeah, I've heard, it's, I've it's,
0: heard it's, about it. But.
1: Yeah, it's the, she's doing some great work, and I thought I thought it was very fun to uh, to see. It's fun to watch. I, I've watched that two years in a row, so that was good.
0: Cool, yeah, so before we talk specifically about the deconstruction. Um, so yeah. yeah, so the so Pat Bader, Miles and Brian, their whole big way that they teach improv is position play. Ah, there's the magic, isn't There's it? the magic. There's so the I, magic. So when you were saying that like you know, maybe Truth and Comedy and and McNapier are opposite side of the coin, I tend to think of it as like Mick and Miles are opposite side of the coin in the sense that like Everything Mick teaches about is like how to go first, how to take care of yourself. It's like he has this whole you know, the whole book, and then there's like one paragraph in it that's like, well what if you don't go first? And then he's like, Well then just keep doing whatever you were gonna do actually, act like ho- act like you were Hopefully
1: after. your scene partner has read this book. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Do exactly what you were going to do anyway, and then hopefully, you know, if they're an astronaut and they're uh Oh, we're gonna to have to walk over to that crater over there. And you came out, and you were gonna be a cowboy. And then you're like, "Woohoo! Let's go!" get that. go! Well, you talk about
1: space cowboys. Then the movie Armageddon shows up. You got space cowboys. It happens.
0: Whereas uh, Miles and the whole idea of position play is is waiting till you realize what the other person wants you to do, and then and then doing
1: that. Or specifically waiting till the other person declares what. what essentially position they're playing, like what type of scene that you think they're gonna play in that character and then how to respond to that. Right. Yeah. I uh, I got the BOC covered position play uh two years ago at Improv Utopia. Right. Hey, hey Nick, we're 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 hawking uh Improv Utopia here. Uh Improv Utopia, it was East Coast and it was uh it was character development and a little bit of position play. I i, I thoroughly manning the name of the workshop, I don't remember what it was, but I have a ton of notes on it. And that was I uh, my first direct Encounter with position play, and how he mentioned that all scenes can be broken down to four basic types. And I was like, "Well, this is cool because you think about oh, we, you get this type of scene, you get that type of scene. It's like, nope, four types. Yeah, but you have that, nope, four types. And by by gum, they're right. Uh, you you show me any scene, either in a movie or on TV or in a live theater performance, and yes, it can fit into one of those four categories every single time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about those four scenes. So. So there's four scenes. So, well, four scene, types. Four, four scene types. Four known scene types. So the most uh, common one, or the one that we see the most, is straight absurd.
1: Correct. I, I would say it's the majority of the scenes I've seen. Scenes I've seen, boy, it's going to be a lot of weird words. That would be the majority of all the scenes I have witnessed as an audience member or a player, or have been in myself. That's straight absurd. One person acts the straight man, or the base of normalcy, or one person essentially is the audience. And the other person has some sort of wacky behavior or or trait, and that becomes the game—the the playing of that wackiness off the, the straight the straight person.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I feel like the reason that that becomes the most common, commonly seen, seen, the most <laughs> right? commonly witnessed scene right is because that's really how, especially like UCP or any any place that really focuses on the game. I guess IO too, even though they're not as game-centric. But like, it's the whole idea that like, you wait for an unusual thing to happen. You call out that unusual thing, and you explore that unusual thing. And usually, it's obviously that like the two of you are acting, the two of you are trying to act like straight people. One of the people says something unusual that is like that is right, that is whether it's a mistake or whether it's from a premise or whatever. And then you call that thing out, and then they're pointing out other ways in which they do
1: that. Yeah, the success in the UCB method is that unusual thing. Should become game. If it doesn't, and we're just uh, playing with multiple uh, unusual things on stage, then we've lost focus of the scene, and we might not know where it's going to go. We might not be able to get to heightening. We're not going to have a repeatable idea. We're not going to find something that we can play. If we don't settle on, this is the thing we're going to play. All right.
0: Hold on two seconds. I'm going to edit this out, but I'm going to pull open my notes so that I have more things that I can, more prompts that I can really
1: uh, Still looking for a sponsorship from Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> We're
0: going to be waiting a like that. All right, so let's talk about just some like advice, uh, rules of thumb for the straight absurd scenes. So that's straight slash absurd. Correct. So, yeah, so like we said, that's the most common, if you've ever done improv, you've played a lot of straight absurd scenes. But his, I feel like his advice, him and Miles' advice, is Brian. Brian and Miles' advice for that is interesting because it's, it's you're still doing that same type of scene, but they have, uh, but it's like it's different advice that you don't necessarily hear when you're just like right. The absurd
1: behavior is is going to be especially in decon. It's going to be as a lens, basically, that everyone in the audience can identify someone in their life that has this other type of behavior. So if it's someone that's uh, always mean, or someone that's uh, crazy stingy, or someone that's uh, gluttonous, even though they don't have to be, some some other sin or some other wackiness that, that they focus on, they know someone like that. And then as we as we dial down and we, we, we adjust the focus on that lens, that absurd person is made clearer and clearer as to what that absurdity is. And they heighten it and they heighten it to the point where the audience identifies, yes, that's someone, I know someone exactly like that. I'm glad someone's calling them out on it. I'm glad it's being pointed out how weird it is. And I get to laugh at it. And this amuses me, and the next time they see that person who has that uh, absurd behavior, instead of thinking I don't like this person, or instead of thinking they're a nuisance to me, they might get a, a happy memory that someone made this a funny thing.
0: And yeah, <laughs>
1: this is cool this is who you are life. in life. This is who you are in life. And uh, as long as you're not treating people horribly, and then we laugh, but not, not someone who's like you know, going out and beating other people up, or you know, kicking people out of their homes as a horrible landlord, you know, not to the extreme, although those people exist. So rather than I can laugh at those people, maybe, okay, I've seen other people play people like you. I have a little bit more insight in how your mind might work, and maybe I have a better way or a possible chance of communicating with you. Maybe I'll be able to say a few sentences that will actually get through your level of absurdity, and I'll understand that when you say your absurd thing, that's through your own filter, that it might mean something different than the way I always perceive it. So it gives you a little inroads on this is how this person behaves, this is how people like this behave and how to walk around that behavior and work with it.
0: Oh, that's super cool from like an applied applied improv sense. Because even like Brian will always say stuff like, using improv to change the world. And oh, I, stuff, and stuff like I, that. I
1: have not yet memorized his his lovely paragraph on that. I have it written down in several places for multiple camps. Uh, and it's a wonderful sentiment. And I, I wish I could tell you exactly what it says right now. If and, you want to uh,
0: hear it, you can listen to episode one of the Pack. Theater,
1: Miles Troth, workshop. Oh yeah, he does throw it out there, doesn't he?
0: <laughs> yeah, so he's,
1: nonchalant. He's got. He like so many. Like he has like 10,
0: ten—not rule, but ten things he does in improv. Like, who are we? How do I feel about you? How do I really feel about you? What are we doing? Why is the audience watching this? Why is they like? It's, why are they still
1: watching? Why are they still watching? Yeah, that's it's just, like the one it's like six yep. of the ten
0: things are. Why is the audience watching this? Like
1: every three seconds they ask themselves. Like, every five seconds they ask themselves that. Why am I watching this? Why am I watching this? I watching this? He's not wrong you've you got to be able to keep answering that question so that they can stay uh, engaged to the next point. If you're going to make a statement, or you you just if you want some ha-has, and you just want to have a ha-ha comedy show that people may or may not come back to, may or, may or may not be thinking about the next day, then yeah, you can do that. That's fine. I'm not disparaging anyone who does that. I was in a short-form-only group for a year and a half, and that was basically our goal. We didn't we didn't necessarily look for a deeper meaning. We weren't telling a story with a moral We weren't trying to change people's minds on stage. We were just having a good time that night, and then we were gone. But if you want people to go, think about what what we saw on stage. And Hey, I do see people like that in my life, and I do want to be able to talk to them better. Or maybe they don't know how they're perceived, because they they don't have that filter that the rest of us have. Then that's the kind of thing where you are getting a little bit further. So if the audience is engaged, then they're going to remember it better the next day. They might not remember all the jokes, but they'll remember, hey, that scene happened. With someone who resembled someone that I either work with or that I live with, or someone in my family, and it made me have a feeling about the character on stage. That character doesn't exist. That person made him up five seconds ago. But you know what? I have feelings about that character, and that's what the audience is going to
0: Yeah, look. I guess you could argue that that's what takes it to be art. I guess you could use that as a very loose definition that's of art. Why,
1: why do we love heroes? Why do we love villains? They're the, they're the most uh, cinematic, most dramatic characters in, in anything we do. Or why do we love characters that have heart? Because once in a while, there'll just be uh, we'll a second or third string character in a motion picture or a TV show, and they just they pull on your heartstrings the right way, and you're like, I'm always going to remember that character, even if they only showed up once. Because it made me feel something when I watched it, and it wasn't just a throwaway line.
0: Yeah. All right. So, we've still got our other three. To-
1: so, yeah, so, so, Brian O'Connell has this lovely long paragraph. You should listen to it, and it's about how Improv is going to save the world. It's going to work. I believe, I believe it'll heal the world. Heal the world. That is correct. Heal the world. We're going to get there.
0: Uh, So then the next type is uh, characters or peas in a pod, mirroring type of scenes.
1: Character-driven scenes don't have to be peas in a pod. In the decon, it's specifically taught to us to be, mirroring, be peas in the pod. But characters, like I said, astronaut and cowboy. It can happen. That cowboy just happens to also be on the moon. So he's he's an astronaut, but you know what? Maybe Maybe he's a rancher at home. You know, may, may, so he's going to have cowboy tendencies, but he's also an astronaut, along with the other guy who's just you know, air Air Force cadet. I'm an astronaut. I'm 100 percent astronaut and had this since I wanted to be a kid. So other kid wanted to be a cowboy, just went into the astronaut business.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I always think of it in my head as as that being well. So the way that I think about about the position play. Just kind of jumping ahead because we haven't talked about the third,
1: fourth one. We'll get there.
0: I think about like straight absurd is obviously straight absurd. One character is straight, one is absurd. And I always think of character scenes as being absurd, absurd. If that makes sense. And then you have your realistic scenes, and those are like straight, straight. And then you have your alternate reality, and those are could be a blend of anything, but the absurd thing is the situation or the environment. So they're all they're all. The I, I do, They're all combinations of a straight, absurd...
1: I see how you're calling characters absurd-absurd, but to them, they're not absurd. To the other character, they're not, either. It's, right, one, they
0: both think that they're well straight people, but... Yeah, so
1: it's not it's not absurd. It's not something it's not, it's not called out. I'm not going to call out the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, cowboy's exactly, behavior. Exactly. The cowboy's not going to call out the astronaut's behavior. You are an astronaut. I know you're an astronaut. You're going to behave and react to things as an astronaut would. I'm a cowboy. I'm going to behave and react to, as, to things as a, as a cowboy would. But we're not calling each other out on that. We're not saying, hey, why are you acting like a cowboy? It's declared, I am a cowboy. I am an astronaut. So I don't think it's a true absurdity. Although, if you think about it that way, that's, that's fine. That's that's in your school of thought. That's how you put it all into your crystal ball and improv in your head. And that's how you, that's how you work with it. Great. I, I see characters as just that. Strong character choices, and that's the filter. That's the POV. That's the lens. The cowboy always sees something and reacts as if a cowboy would. It continually heightens it. Uh, you see, uh, you see, uh, you're on the moon, and you're a co- you're a space cowboy, and you're one's just an astronaut. And you see something moving through the crater. The astronaut's always going to see something and go, "Oh, I've detected an unknown life form." And the Cowboy could go, "Hey guys, we got space cows. Space cows. We're going to go see that big space cow. He's going to declare it something, even though that's not what it is yet. It hasn't been dissected in the lab. They're animals. You shouldn't dissect them. Uh, but they haven't investigated what that thing moving in the crater is." but the cowboy's going to name it something like a cowboy would and the astronaut's going to be technical and name it like an astronaut would. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, neither is absurd. They just get their that. own game to play and then they're finding a game to play together. Yeah. That's a fun little Paul Valancourt thing thrown in for you. Yeah,
0: I always think of them as the characters I think I mentioned this on one of the earlier, this reference on one of the earlier podcasts but have you ever seen that Key and Peele sketch? It's like they're the two bellhops and they're like super into Game of Thrones. Yep. And the like, mm-hmm. you see, come down with a dragon, and
1: like, on, man!" I'm, I'm glad we're talking about uh, Miles and, and Boc because Boc can do that entire sketch by himself, and he does in workshops, and it's amazing. Yeah, yes, you, that's that's, always what I, that's, yeah. Because
0: yeah. that's how I guess that's kind of how I came up with the yeah. idea of thinking of like character weapons being too absurd people, where they're just like, but they're not they're, absurd. Where they're just heightening. They, not especially
1: those those guys, they they are. They're peas in a pod character driven. Right. They yeah. are the same character, just with two different, slightly pointing view, two different lives. They have two different families, but they see the world through the same lens. So they're talking that Game of Thrones bit, and yes, they both heighten each other's impressions. They happen to be bellhops or a doorman or whatever they are, but they love that Game of Thrones stuff. So that's the peas in the pod, but I don't consider it absurd because they're not, they don't find each other weird. They don't try to correct each other's behavior. They don't try to find something that will stop that from happening that's their life, and they're both happy with that segment of their life.
0: Yeah, I agree. And then, yeah, cause the other thing Brian also kind of formed this, I just, so one of the other things Brian says, like, to have, have the mantra when you're doing the character scenes, but I know that again, like, there's this tenuousness between, like, position play and the deconstruction, because you can learn it from either way, like, there's just position play as a standalone thing, and then there's at least a prescribed deconstruction of how you
1: which position play scene types go in the certain format of the decon,
0: yeah. Right, and those ones do tend to be those character scenes, which are like scene two and three. The
1: three character scenes and, and the RPs in the pot, specifically to heighten and focus on a trait or traits that you saw in the, let's get to realism next, into the, the opening scene or the core scene of the, of the decon, which is the realistic scene. So you right. find something in the, in the characters of the realistic scene. And that's what you you focus the lens on, and that's what you dial in on, and say, "Hey, audience, this is the part of this character I want you to pay attention to in future scenes." No, really, I really want you to pay attention to it. I'm going to let you know how I paid attention to it, and now so will you.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so that, yes, yeah, so that's how you. Yeah. Let's just step back and talk about the realistic scenes. Hey. So I think those. I think those are probably the least common ones that you see because people. Uh, aren't trying to be funny, or they're like, there is a game, there is a game that is inherent in it, but it's not as obvious, it's a much more like subtle or like nuanced game, if you would agree with if that? You,
1: if you know other people in your group, uh, and you, you're not working with someone for the, although I, when I was learning the decon, there were people on stage that were chosen for the first realistic scene exercise we did. And other than meeting themselves, uh, meeting the, the other person earlier that day at camp, these two people had never worked with each other before, had never seen video of the other people, had never seen them work in a different group, and they were chosen for the realistic scene. And they were just told, let's have a conversation, the two of you, as the two of you, we're just going to be watching it, about, you know, conversation. Yeah, we're going to talk about this TV show, which I, I believe they did. And one person had seen the entire run of the show, and the other person though, had only been halfway through, and that became part of this conversation. And just talking about a regular thing they both had as a common frame of reference, they found funny in it, it happened, it came up, and they were able to heighten the the funny they found by just having a realistic conversation about it. One person would say, you know, I, I stopped watching it, you know, after season two, and the other person would be like freaking out, oh my god, season three is when it became really good, you have to go back to it. At that point, they're not being straight absurd, they are being a realistic person, they are themselves, they love that show. And they want to share that love of that show with the other person who abandoned it early. Right. And, and it was just so fun to watch.
0: Yeah. I think the reason you don't see those as much is because people are afraid, maybe, to to do that. They obviously they like they want to get
1: people to, want, the, they uh, want to the, find uh, the funny. You want to be a funny, follow the fun. Uh, but with Deacon, again, let's show you real life, which is what the realistic scene's all about. And then let's focus in on what is it about these characters that was a little either off base or just the characteristic we want to focus on. And then we keep showing that slice of life again as it evolves through time.
0: Right. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, I think about I think Brian might use this example but like a realistic scene is kind of like, I think he uses friends as the analogy where it's like they're all realistic people and they each have like little things about them like like, uh, whatever, Rachel's like the pretty one and uh, Joey's the stupid one, and Ross is the uptight one, and wouldn't Monica's
1: the competitive one.
0: Yeah, not her name.
1: Chandler's the funny name Like in Phoebe. Like Phoebe's Phoebe. Funny. Zoe. I was saying
0: Zoe? Zoe. Whatever. <laughs>
1: and Phoebe Buffet
0: <laughs> is the twin
1: is, sister Ursula from Mad About You. Oh, I know my TV references.
0: She's the kooky crazy one or whatever. Yeah. And so they're all just realistic, you know, regular people. They're obviously slightly archetype and yeah, slightly right. exaggerated versions of those people. But just people being themselves and there's implicit games that are already in that. Like, oh well then how does it, what happens when the kooky person and the stupid person go to the D M V together? Maybe one has, like, conspiracies about the government tracking you, and the other person... Just...
1: So clueless, they think it's a fun experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, so there's... Right, so there's, like, there's nothing absurd about those characters. Those characters just have personalities and have traits. And there's always ways... It's not like an absurd character where the, the game is the absurd thing. The game is, like, how... Just the two...
1: How do those dynamic so... Yeah.
0: Which I think is like a super interesting way. Yeah, no
1: one goes out of their way to call Joey out for being uneducated or just. I uh, don't we'll call him uneducated. I'm not call Joey you know, now. We're talking about Friends. I want to call Joey just uh, if this were if this were a, a role playing game, he might have uh, a low intelligence but a high wisdom. He knows what people should do. He just doesn't always do it, or vice versa. It's like he just doesn't get what the, the on the same level that other people get. But you could say that of any of those characters in that show. They, they all have their own thing, and they just don't understand what we would consider a basic understanding of a fact, the same way everybody else does.
0: Right, yeah, and everyone knows a person. <laughs> like, right, every human being is like that. It's so everyone awesome. has a
1: Ross in their life, and yes, that person is the worst person in your life.
0: <laughs> Unless that's you. If you don't have a Ross in your life, that's
1: if you. If you're the Ross in your life, look in the mirror. What are you doing? <laughs> again, the, the, the realistic scene, uh, people say, you know, that's I think we teach basic reality here. I'll, I'll be teaching, uh, helping teach a level one class in a few, uh, about a half hour myself, and I know we have to get the, the who, the what, and the where's out, and then the glory of, of position play is that, that falls by the wayside a little bit. It's like now that you've learned these skills and they become ingrained in your head, you know how to find the who, the what, and the where just based on what the first character's initiation either physically or, or verbally is. You wait for that, and I think we get to that, that last position, uh, position play. I know you're dying to talk about, which is alternate reality.
0: Yes, the alternate
1: reality. Uh, which, uh, as, as Brian lovingly told us, and he was absolutely correct, it can masquerade as the other three. So you're never quite sure you're in alternate reality right away. But it's it's the other way around. Uh, in the first, I think it was the first three lines of dialogue, was the first exercise, he, he'll have to correct me on that, that you can tell what type of scene it is. You should know by the third, third line of dialogue. You might know by the second line of dialogue. So if there's two characters talking, and you just have, "Hey Joe, you know you're, you're late for work again today. You know I have to tell the boss. Yeah, my car broke down. I'm sorry. Right now, nothing weird has been declared. There's nothing, nothing absurd. No one's got a weird attitude about that. Not like high five. You're late for work again. It's a typical reaction to it. Probably a realistic scene. These seem two realistic guys. They're in the the regular world. Everything's fine. Then you get a character like, "Oh, hey, hey Irma. I noticed that you know you only brought cake again for lunch." And then Irma gets, yeah, I love cake. I love cake. Cake's my favorite. All I ever want to do is eat cake all day. What's wrong with that? Why, why is there a problem with my cake? Now we know when right. it's straight absurd. Yeah. And you can you can dictate that because someone said something that seems as a baseline normal for the, the reality we live in. And this other person is cake person. And that's not something you see every single day in your life. And then uh, you want to get too uh, character driven. And then both characters like, oh, you know, I I'm a cab driver. I look at the world through cab driver's lens and then someone else is a, you know, a socialite and they're always going to react from a socialite's point of view. And we're not calling it out as uh, straight and straight, it's not unusual behavior, but this cab driver is just going to do cab driver things. Every time something happens in the scene, they look at it. as care. Someone says, oh, you know, they're waiting in line somewhere. And the cab driver would say, come on, come on, the meter's running. This is, this is, this, I, this cost me, this would be $15 if I was in the cab. The socialite going to be like, oh, I know, I know. I make $50,000 a day just by standing somewhere. I'm making money right now. And it's not weird. It's, that's what they do. They make money just by being someplace, and the cab driver is losing money just by being stuck someplace.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And then alternate reality, the rule of that was, if you don't know within the first three lines of dialogue what type of scene it is, then it's alternate reality. <laughs> but if you can't say it's definitely realistic, or it's definitely character-driven, or it's definitely straight absurd, then the rule is it's alternate reality. And alternate reality is... Uh, either it mirrors our own world, or it's similar to a, a, a logical world in some way, but there's a difference. Like, let's let's take Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's an alternate reality. Vampires and demons exist. Other than that, it's the United States. They're in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, they start off in high school. They have typical high school stuff they have to go through. But all this mystical stuff happens to be real and true and they have to deal with that. And after the very first half of the first episode where suddenly you think that's weirdness, that becomes the baseline for their entire rest of the existence. The entire run of the show is these things exist, our job is to kill them. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they not, not to go back
0: to another key and sketch, but I love the one where it's 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 the post apocalyptic one. It's like them and zombies. Yeah. You know, they're zombies but the zombies are racist. Yeah. So they like don't, I was think of that as like a great alternative. It's just them and their normal thing. Yeah, because
1: the alternate reality thing is this happens to be post-apocalyptic. We're still dealing with everyday problems. We're still dealing with racism. We're still dealing with... uh, If they explored that even further, you'd have classism. You'd you'd have everything show up that shows up in the world we live in. It just happens to be populated by zombies. Right, yeah.
0: Which, yeah, I think that's... That's always the example
1: that I think of. Simplest alternate reality in the world. It's, I won't call it the simplest. The closest. What if, you're on a, what if you're on a place and you're talking about how purple the sky looks tonight? Yeah, it's a, it's a purple. It was red all day today, but now it's purple as the sun goes down. That's not that's not the colors we have. That just happens to be whatever colors the gases in that planet makes refract through, through their atmosphere. That's the simplest. It could just be any other type of scene in the world. But because there's an, a, a stated difference that we know differs from our base reality it qualifies as an alternate reality scene. So again, that's the catch-all. Of like, Oh, I don't know what type of scene it is. Yeah, it's one of these it's one of these four. And if you can't decide which of the other three it seems to be, it's probably an alternate reality scene.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I always kind of thought, of, oh, the way I think of it is the difference between the other three, this is kind of what I was saying earlier, has to do with like the character relationships and they're, and they're in a, a non-alternate reality. They're in the same base reality that us as humans exist, and then the alternate reality, because it's separate from the way that the two characters relate to each other, but is how the characters relate to the to the environment or to the reality?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, does, the difference, does the difference in their reality make a difference in behavior or cause them to, to perceive their world differently than we would perceive ours? If you have... Go back and do like a Renaissance, two nights during the Renaissance. I don't, were the nights in the Renaissance? My history is failing me. Uh, it's like two knights that meet up. Now, if those characters, if the actors played their characters using the same behaviors that a knight would have, and not the Monty Python effect of, of two knights meeting up, and not, you know, bashing coconuts and not being ridiculous, if they played them as straight knights, would you consider it a character driven scene? I'm like, I don't, I don't see a characterization unless they're being like the nightiest knight in the world and really pushing and heightening their their knightitude or their knighthood, as it were, then it's essentially it's a realistic scene. But since it takes place somewhere else, you would call that an alternate reality
0: scene. Yeah. I guess that's just my question of whether whether you think of alternate reality as as a fourth scene type or as a as possibly a modifier for the other three, but that could still be a standalone. Like you could just do a scene where, uh, say, there's a say, you, say you're there's a cockroach or a rat in your apartment. It's Just us sitting around, you know, like, oh, can you hand me the Captain Crunch? And we're just eating cereal. And then it's like a a, a rat starts by, and you're like, we're gonna need a bigger cage. Then it's like, okay, now we're doing an alternate reality where we're doing Jaws.
1: Well, that's the thing Are we do is everyone referred to. We always handle vermin as uh, people were doing in the, the, the movie Jaws, there's always Jaws references for everything, then yes, that that looks like a character-driven scene, but if the whole world is like that, if everyone that comes in the door to help us is doing either a Quint or uh, one of the professors, I'm not, oh, I never remember Quint, or the sheriff, uh, everyone's doing something that's a Jaws reference, then yeah, the alternate reality in this world is the Jaws tropes are played out, and that's where the funny is, that things are looked through through the Jaws lens. So alternate reality, the fun comes from. We know what type of trope it is. Like I said, we just happened to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Vampires—that's the alternate reality they live in. Everything looks the same except for vampires, and they play the vampire tropes a little differently than you'd see in some of the older films. They—they were—they banter with the villains. The, you know the antihero Spike shows up, and it's like now, now there's a love hate relationship. Now there's romance going on with the vampire. Oh, now uh, now it's spun on its, its head a little bit. It's not old school Christopher Lee Dracula films where the the, the guy who's infects the game who turns out to be von Helsing, has to stake them all before he gets killed or before Dracula kills you know whoever the victims of that film are. It's not that straight cut and dry detective work film. It's a world where vampires exist, and they they end up just Cramp in your style. Buffy just wants to be a kid, but she can't because vampires exist. And f- for some unforeseen reason, it's her job to kill them. And it is a pain in the neck. She has finals to study for. She had to go to college. And that's where the fun is. It's not just we're fighting vampires. It's we're fighting vampires, and I'm still a kid. And I'm still trying to have a regular life. And that's where the shoehorning of the funny comes in. Right, yeah. So, it's- as opposed to contrasting characters against characters. It's characters against uh, a reality. Kind of it's, what is this trope that the reality is that we we'll are look at? Again, you wouldn't necessarily do an alternate reality uh, scene where just the sky is a different color. That's that's semantics. Right, that's how it does change? It's like, change at that color point, color. it's other things are different colors. That reality is other things are different colors yeah. that we know of. And I, I can't think yeah. of something in my head yeah, that yeah, you so can make a storyline right. off of. But that would be it. You'd find it.
0: Yeah, I guess any genre scene also is just is an alternate reality because,
1: like, is it or is it a realistic scene? If it's if it's a war film, it, Saving Private Ryan, you take any scene out of that film, yeah, these guys—they're both soldiers—and you think it's character-driven. But unless yeah. they're being, I am being more soldier than any other soldier before, and I'm trying to be the best soldier possible, it's this is where we live right now. It's a realistic scene in that time and space.
0: That's true. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more like uh, like sci-fi or, or noir or uh, like spaghetti western, where those are so non-realistic, it's like yeah, ephics, it, the whole thing is everyone in the town calls things by sci-fi Star Wars inspired could and You could
1: that. play a slightly futuristic scene or a Star Trek type scene, but unless you're playing or messing with that trope a little bit, it's just a realistic scene set in a realistic future. Unless we're really calling out a difference between that, that future and our world now and making that difference the focus of our fun. It's just realistic or what we think will be realistic. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Yeah, because I always thought of tropes and, and genre stuff as being...
1: You think it's the alternate reality, but you have to spin that alternate reality. Why is it fun? Other than why... it could be a character-driven scene, but set in space. Uh, the, the, the old show, uh, um, Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf is a buddy. It's a buddy comedy show. It's a sitcom. It just happens to be set in space. I wouldn't even call it an alternate reality. I don't know what the rules are for that. Is that is all character driven. It's not even straight and absurd because everyone on that show, every character, is absurd. So they're all character. It's a character driven scene or it's a character driven show. It just happens to be set a million years in the future in space. That's just the setting. Everyone on that show has is, is got their own game to play, and they play it all at a 10. <laughs> all right, let's end it there.
0: You've been listening to Improv Town. If you enjoyed this episode, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're in the Rhode Island area, don't forget to check out all the great local improv. Pig, the Providence Improv Guild, has shows every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8. The Contemporary Theater down in Wakefield is currently doing Maestro Improv at 9.30 on Fridays. And the bit players do Shore Form down in Newport every Friday and Saturday night at the Firehouse Theater, and that's BYOB, so that's always fun. You can also check out Improv Jones, Rhode Island's longest-running improv show, on the first Saturday of every month. That's down at the uh, AS220 Black Box in Providence. Last but not least, there's a new improv theater in town, Wage House, which has shows every Friday night at 8 in Pawtucket. And many of these theaters also offer great improv classes, so don't forget to check those out as well. I'm sure Google can help you find everything you need. See you next time.